Ladies and gentlemen, the Brit Pack is back. Simon Head from Rochester in the UK, Chimak Sandu from Toronto in Canada. And I'm not going to lie to you, ladies and gentlemen, we are both in various states of uh, emotional distress, physical exhaustion, uh, mental tiredness. Tick them all off the list because we've been on a roller coaster over the last 48 hours or so. We had the, the final of Euro 2020, England falling at the final hurdle. On penalties, of course it had to be penalties, against Italy after going 1-0 up after two minutes. We will talk about that at the start of this show. And of course, the bulk of the show will be about the biggest story in mixed martial arts. Conor McGregor, Dustin Poirier, the trilogy fight at UFC 264. Basically, no one could have predicted what unfolded on fight night on Saturday night. Lots to unpack. So, Sandu, before we launch into all of this, first off, how are you How are you bearing up after what was an absolutely bananas weekend for us Brits? I'll tell you what, Simon. Normally, on Mondays, I'm, I'm all right. You know, I, I wouldn't say I'm chipper or anything, but I'm usually all right. I've got some energy, good to get the week going, do the podcast with you. But I have to say, today, as I'm talking to you right now, I have the case of the Monday morning blues. And it's everything that you've, that you've mentioned. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Going into this, I mean, it was an epic week. Let's, you know, let's just talk about it. I mean, it was a fantastic week, a packed week, so much going on. And this past weekend, on Friday, I was thinking to myself, this could be the, one of the biggest and best sporting weekends in recent memory and all i was thinking about simon was mcgregor poirier three on saturday night and obviously england the euros i wasn't even thinking about the wimbledon finals i wasn't even thinking about copa america or anything like that just those two events i thought to myself wow this could be pretty damn epic and then we have an unfortunate injury to mcgregor that ended the fight on saturday and then as you mentioned england crashing out on penalties Again, in our, in our lifetime, I can't believe how many times we've seen this happen now. Um, but to, to, to fall short in the final, I think, is, is the worst of the, of the bunch. It hurts the most because we were so close to winning, especially being 1-0 one up. One nil up. Um, and then you compound that with the fact of all the ugly scenes we saw on social media yesterday, you know, in central London, outside Wembley, in the stadium, and then the aftermath and of seeing these players just get untold amount of racial abuse. It's just, you know, it, it just takes the shine off of what has it honestly been just a fantastic four or five weeks. Like, I'm not in England, right? But, you know, there's so many Brits that are abroad that are proud to be British and, and cheer on England and, and you know, in, in these kind of competitions and, and you know, we've got so many friends and family back home and you know, just given what everyone's been through over the last year and a half, I really felt the sense of everyone you know, almost being uplifted by what the national team has been doing over the course of the past month. And then <clears throat> to see some of the stuff on social media, it's like some people haven't learned anything over the course of the last year. And a lot of people still need to do a lot of growing up, need to make some life changes and from a generational point of view, from an institutional point of view, there needs to be some changes. Social media platforms need to make some changes. And, um, and yeah, you know, it's just, it's hard to wake up on a Monday morning. And I know we have a lot to get through, a lot to get through. But, um, 
yeah, Monday morning blues is probably the best way I can describe my feelings right now, Simon. Yeah, it it's a weird thing. The English national team has this ability to completely unite a nation behind it. And we've gone through some roller coasters over the years. I mean, I've been watching England in tournaments since 1986 when I was nine years old. That was my first World Cup uh, that I really remember. There was the 82 that I vaguely remember, but 86 was the one I first really watched properly. And it's just been this this incredible roller coaster of emotions all the way through. This one felt different. This one was like, wow, okay, we're in, you know, we're on the verge of doing something incredible here. And we just fell at the final hurdle. That to me is is fine. I can process that. I was I was in various group chats during the course of the game, and I remember saying to a couple of uh, our American friends, uh, John Morgan and, and Goes on separate chats, and I said to them that I'm kind of expecting the worst case scenario at all times because that's what it's like being an English football fan. So I'm not scared of it anymore. And the fact that we got so close to actually winning, uh, it was it was it was kind of hard to take. But we did incredibly well. The stuff that you mentioned about the the racist abuse that has come out. Unfortunately, this country that we live in, we call it you know, Great Britain. These people really don't live up to the word great at all. They they this is this is the racist underbelly that has always been there, and that. They sneak in under the radar when things are going well and you don't really see or hear much from them because things are going well. But the moment it turns, that's when the light shines on these people and you start to see and and, and, and hear and witness some of the scenes that, that we've seen over the last 12 hours or so. It's been utterly disgraceful. And um, yeah, I just I, it, it, it makes you really, really sad because there's so much positivity to come out of that tournament, so much positivity about the team, about what they stand for and about what they kneel for. And this is the thing, without getting too political, the prime minister of this country and the home secretary both criticised the England team for kneeling and said that fans had the right to boo English players for kneeling against racism. Can you believe that? And yet after the game, when all this racist abuse starts coming out, inevitable racist abuse that has been left unchecked, um, now they're saying, oh, this is disgraceful behaviour. You were, you were enabling it before the tournament. And these are the people that our country have put into power. I think a lot of people in this country need to wake up um, and realise what kind of people are running our country and do something about it. I don't want to be on my political soapbox, though, so I will move on swiftly from that. But yes, being an England supporter is a roller coaster. I love it. It hurts me sometimes, but it also gives me the highest of highs. And this tournament has been fantastic. But that was just part of the weekend. That was last night. That was kind of the end of the weekend for us. Saturday night was absolutely bonkers. UFC 264, the return of Conor McGregor, the, the, the trilogy fight with Dustin Poirier. McGregor winning the first fight at UFC 178 back in... 2014 Poirier winning the rematch this January at UFC 257 how would the third fight go unfortunately we didn't get enough of it we had one round and we'll talk about the action in a sec but it finished with a very unfortunate injury to Conor McGregor and there's a debate over how that injury actually came came to be there's been a suggestion from Dustin Poirier that him checking a leg kick caused it John Kavanagh has come out and suggested that there may even have been an issue leading into the fight. So 
that that all all to one side, and 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 we had a lot of really unsavoury abuse being thrown around as well, leading into the fight, and outside of uh, outside of the uh, the fight finishing as well. So lots to get through. So let's just kind of do it chronologically, I suppose, Sandy. Let's talk about that first round to start with. How did you assess that? Because after the fight, McGregor was like, I was boxing his head off. I was kicking his leg off. He started out okay uh, with the kicks, but you look at that first round and two of the three judges scored it a 10-8 to Dustin Poirier. The third one just gave it a 10-9, but again, to Dustin Poirier. I thought that was a massive round to the diamond. I thought he was well on top and wasn't a million miles off finishing that fight. Um, so how did you assess the first round of that matchup? It was action-packed, I tell you that, Simon. I mean, I mean, Jesus Christ, they were really going at it. Um, Connor was aggressive moving forward, um, so, and so was Dustin Poirier, and it was incredible to see at one point Connor go for go in for the shot, go in for the guillotine. You know, that's a trademark of Dustin Poirier in terms of how many guillotine finishes he's had, and um, and then obviously when it got when it went to the ground, and and obviously Poirier was on top, raining down punches. I give credit to Connor though. He was really active off his back. He was trying to land punches, and he actually, you know, nailed Dustin with a, with a few elbows. But the vast majority of the punishment came from the diamond there. And as the round was ending, Simon, I and, and I and I agree with you. By the way, I, I thought for a moment there, I thought Dustin was on the verge of finishing Connor, or I thought the referee would stop, you know, step in. That didn't happen. And in the final, what, 10 seconds or so, they get, they get back to their feet and they're both kind of going, you know, swinging for the fences a little bit. And then it kind of ends and you're like, what, what's going on here? And, and I'm kind of getting ready for a second round because the first round was so action-packed. I'm like, wow, we get to get our, our breath back. And then all of a sudden, Connor collapses and you're just like, oh my God, here we go again. I can't believe how many injuries like this we have seen, unfortunate injuries over the last couple of months. And you're just fearing the worst immediately. You're like, oh no, Connor's broken his leg. And and obviously now in the aftermath, you know, so many reasons for it have come out. Dustin said he's checked his kick and that's what caused it. Kavanaugh said there was an injury already. Who, who knows? You just don't know. What, what you do know for, for 100% fact is something happened and McGregor, as he was you know, placing his, placing his weight on his back foot, his ankle's leg just gave out and it snapped. And it's a horrible, horrible injury. And it's just an unfortunate way. Obviously, Dustin gets the win. It's in the record books. There was obviously punishment dished out of, over the course of that round that ultimately led to the injury ultimately taking place. Um, obviously, Connor's going to discredit the victory. He, he was already screaming, Dr. Stoppage, Dr. Stoppage. And he's come out and you know basically said, hey, Dustin, if you want to celebrate this illegitimate win, go ahead. And then, Jesus Christ, Simon, Connor's already on his back. Rogan has got a microphone in, it, in his face, which, you know, that is controversial in its own right. A man's got a broken leg and you're, you're trying to conduct a post-fight interview here. And Connor's already trying to set up another fight. It's it's crazy. This guy is he's on another level. Um, and so it's it's not a good look, is it, Simon? All all round, Connor's got another loss um, in the record books. 
Right now, Dustin Poirier is 2-1 up over the course of the three fights. Connor's not going to be back for a good while. He's he's said in a post-fight uh, social media post that surgery's gone well, which is good news, obviously. And he said that he'll be you know back up on his feet in six weeks. But being back up on your feet in six weeks and then having the confidence to put weight on it and um, and train and prepare for a fight is a whole different ball game. Um, so yeah, and and honestly, you know, there were some ugly scenes in the aftermath, both from Connor's side. You know, I can understand Dustin Poirier's wife Jolie flipping him off, just given what he said about her in, 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 in during fight week. Dustin, I think for the most part was was classy in, in his victory, kind of just just saying, "Hey, listen, I hope Connor gets home back to his family safe and sound." But yeah, it was just uh, not not the way you wanted to see events play out. We like to see good, clean finishes. Obviously, it's a violent sport; these things happen. Uh, but you just don't want to see injuries like this occur. Uh, it's, it's not not to say you know anyone's different, but Simon, you know, when the biggest star in the sport suffers a maybe a career life, you know, changing injury like this, there's a trickle down effect on the business. So let's see what happens long term with Connor. But right now things aren't looking good. Yeah, it was it was it was just a mad night. Like from from the way the fight started, from the build up to the fight, the bad blood and some of the stuff that McGregor was saying. I messaged you on WhatsApp before um before fight night. I think it was Friday or Saturday early in the day. Yeah. And I said to you, um, just for the record, I'm changing my pick. Um, and that's not me trying to get any kind of brownie points or anything in terms of saying, oh, well, I predicted this. I thought Connor was shook during fight week. Just he seemed a little out of control to me. Like I got the impression that I think he knew that he needed to turn things up to 12, not even 11, in order to try and knock Poirier off his game because... Poirier is is such a such a matured fighter compared to the guy who got completely mentally taken apart um, in their first meeting back in 2014. Totally different animals of, of, of a fighter now, and um, I just thought that to me it sounded it seemed to me like McGregor was a little bit desperate. I got the impression that he he wasn't getting the desired effect from from uh, some of the early stuff he was saying. So he was just turning it up. And then like the death threats at the weigh-in and all this sort of stuff. It's like, okay, come on. There's, there is a line here. Um, and I think we're crossing it at this point. So, and, you know, bringing family into it and all that sort of stuff. I'm not a fan of that either. But again, I don't necessarily think he believes all this stuff that he says. I just think he's doing everything he can. To me, it looked like the actions of a desperate man desperately trying to get Dustin Poirier to get out of his his uh, his flow state almost and be angry, be that guy, draw him in, and then you can punish him on fight night. Well, that didn't really happen. McGregor came out throwing all these kicks at the start and was landing some, and he was throwing them heavy as well. He was really, le- he was really letting them go. And uh, he caught Poirier with a few and then Poirier just sort of backed away, composed himself. And then he came forward, closed the distance straight away, stepped inside the kicking range, and then just started letting fly with the hands. Back McGregor against the cage. McGregor then went for a guillotine, which ended up with the fight on the floor. And with once once McGregor had got his back, uh, his his back was on the mat. It was all Poirier, big elbows, big punches. McGregor tried to answer with some elbows off his back, but really they weren't doing too much. 
I think the best he could have hoped for was to try and try and cut him, but that didn't really happen. And uh, and then it was only really when the fight got back to the feet again that they both started swinging, as you say. And actually, watching it live, I thought Poirier had caught him. I thought Poirier had rocked him with a big shot, and that's why McGregor went down. But actually, the replay show he didn't. They both threw big shots. They both missed. And uh, McGregor sort of went to step back. And then obviously we saw what happened uh, with with the unfortunate bone break. And uh, Poirier just pounced on him and tried to finish the fight. And Herb Dean, I thought, was almost going to stop it with like two seconds to go or something. But I think Herb knew that it was a massive fight and that there was only a couple of seconds left. So he let it go. And then McGregor never was able to get back to his feet again. So so from a, from, from a fight perspective... And calling it an, an illegitimate win, I think, is, is 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 not correct. When you sign the contract and you get in the cage on fight night, I think it's understood that people go in there with, 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 with bumps and bruises and, and damage accumulated during training camp. If you step in the cage and the referee says fight, you've gone in there saying, the version of me that's standing here now is ready to compete. And that was obviously the case for Conor McGregor. Anything that happens... From that point to the end of the fight is fair game, provided it's within the rules. So he went in there. He might have been. He might have had an injury going on. He might not. But whatever happened through the course of having that fight with uh, Dustin Poirier, McGregor got injured. Um, you can argue the toss over whether something specific that Poirier did caused injury or not. But the truth is, they went in there, they fought. And it, was, it is a legitimate win. It's unfortunate if you're Conor McGregor, but it's a legitimate win 2-1 to Dustin Poirier. But they're going to do it again, aren't they? They're going to do it again. But why are they going to do it again? Does Dustin Poirier need to do it again? No. I don't think he needs to do it again unless he feels that he hasn't justified that, that win that we had on Saturday night. I mean, he dominated the round on my on my scorecard. I thought he was, he was taking him to the cleaners in that fight. So... I think that, that he has no qualms on in terms of how the fight was going. It wasn't like he got hammered for five minutes and then the guy hammering him broke his leg. It was a one-sided round in his favour. So I don't think he has anything to prove. It's because of all this talk. And you talked about McGregor selling the fight. Partly, yes, I think he was selling the fight. But also, I don't think Joe Rogan should have been interviewing him. I mean, if, if you're... If you're the broadcaster and you're a, you're a journalist looking at it from a get the story point of view, and I'm a journalist, I completely understand why that happened, why, why he went in there and did the interview. And it was great TV, brilliant TV, and that is going to set up McGregor's next move. But we don't like to see fighters who have been knocked out get interviewed. Why is that? Because they're not 100% they're not with it. They've been badly affected by what's happened in the cage. They're their ability to mentally process what's going on can be a little bit skewed and it's unfair to interview them under those conditions. It's not a concussion related situation when you've broken your leg, but the pain that McGregor was clearly going through, like you heard him sort of shouting out in pain as the doctors were trying to stabilize his ankle. That man was in agony. And a lot of what was coming out of his mouth, I think was just, it was, it was, it was fury. It was absolute fury, but a lot of it could have stemmed or been heightened by the fact that he was in absolute agony at the time. And I think it's unfair on McGregor as well. I know he said what he said, but I think it's, I don't think 
that he should have been put in a position to have to say anything at that point. I think let him stabilise himself, let him get some painkillers in, deal, do, you know, deal with all of the medical side, let him calm down, and then let him say something via a statement or whatever afterwards. And if he's still spitting fire like he did in it, you know, in a cage, that's his statement, all well and good. But I just, I wasn't that comfortable with seeing. While it was great TV, don't get me wrong, I just didn't, I didn't think it was the right thing to do. Um, but what it does mean, Sandu, is we're going to see this fight. But I do have a theory. I mean, he's going to be out for a while. He's going to have to rehab that ankle. He's going to have to build up strength. He's going to have to build up confidence in it as well. What do you think his next move will be? Like, on paper, the Poirier fourth fight is the obvious thing at the top of the list. Is that the first fight you think he's going to have? Because I've got, I've got some theories on this. And while on paper that makes sense, I wonder whether he might go boxing first. What do you think? Wow. Okay, I don't know you want to go in that direction. Um, all right, here's my theory, and it could go a few different ways. Obviously, clearly, the next fight, for Dustin Poirier is going to be Charles Oliveira for the UFC lightweight championship, right? And that'll be some point later on this year, maybe one of those events that ends the year, closes the year out. We know that Conor is obsessed with getting another fight with Dustin Poirier. That's clear. That's evident. He's also been very clear in his obsession of becoming champion again. Now, he's going to be on the shelf for a while. He's going to be injured. Let's see how, what his recovery timeline is like and, and all the rest of it. I feel as though he needs to fight someone that isn't going to throw any leg kicks, Simon. And I think that the right fight for him right now to build him back up and at the same time end another uh, you know saga would be the Nate Diaz trilogy. I think... It would be box office. It would be a blockbuster. It would be an environment away from the nastiness of this Dustin Poirier situation. I think if you do that fight at 155 pounds and get a win, it you know it gives a bit more credence to allow the UFC and everyone to you know ultimately buy into the fact that you've kind of quote unquote earned your way back to a championship fight, um, and also as it's been reported, uh, most notably by our good friend Ariel Helwani, it looks as though Nate Diaz is very close to the end of his contract. And so you don't want to lose an opportunity to, to, to get that trilogy fight with Nate. The worst case scenario is, is Connor's on the shelf, Nate fights through his contract, explores free agency, and for some reason you know, or another, he's not a UFC fighter you know, in, in a couple of years. Uh, and then that trilogy fight with you know, Conor has gone forever. So I think stylistically that would make sense. It would allow him to, you know, I guess for the most part, not worry about leg kicks or, or checking leg kicks. It will be just a, a stand-up firefight like you know, the, the, the last fight was against Nate. Um, and so that's my theory. That, and, and I think that would probably be the best way of booking the situation. Um, it allows meritocracy with regards to the championship fight between Oliveira and Poirier to play out. It allows the UFC to put on a big blockbuster fight using two out of their, I guess, three biggest draws currently on their roster. If you throw in Jorge Mazadal into the mix. Um, so yeah, that's, I mean, it, this could <laughs> never say never, you know, a million different scenarios could play out, but right now I think that's, that's where my head is at Simon. I think that would be the, um, 
the most appropriate way for things to play out for Connor's perspective as well. I think from an MMA standpoint, that is the, I think that's the, the easiest fight. When I say easy, nothing's easy when you're booking Nate Diaz for a fight, so it seems. But I think that fits easily into the overall big picture of what's going on with the UFC. Dustin Poirier is going to go fight Charles Oliveira. Arguably, if you're the UFC, you want Dustin Poirier to lose to Charles Oliveira because then the McGregor fight is a lot easier to book. Um, or they don't care about the meritocracy and they'll just chuck McGregor straight into a title fight. We've seen this happen, right? So who knows? But I tend to agree with you. And, and my, my, my boxing theory is such that you've got to get back to full fitness, right? Getting back to full fitness... And you've got to build up confidence and strength in your leg. And in the meantime, if you can't get the fight that you want, i.e. the Dustin Poirier fight, then the next, you know, the next sensible thing in some ways is to just get the biggest payday you can get. And I think there are two fights there that, well, there's three, but one of them is almost impossible. But I think there are three boxing matches that you could do. One of them is the Manny Pacquiao fight. They've already done quite a lot of groundwork for that fight. They were looking to probably have the fight about this sort of time this year. Um, but of course, his defeat to Dustin Poirier in January kind of scuppered all of that. That fight could be revisited for early next year, perhaps. Uh, or maybe even end of this year, depending on how McGregor's recovery goes. Um, the other option is one that came to me just as I was sitting here. Oscar De La Hoya is an option. Um, Oscar De La Hoya fights under the Triller banner um, that is something that could potentially be done and uh, that's a fight between two huge names two huge names I think McGregor would would be interested in that matchup I think uh, Dana White I think would quite like the idea of sending his man over there to to light up uh, a, an old rival of his so I think I think that might be a fight that that Connor could maybe twist Dana's arm into making happen. Um, and the fight that I think that would be the biggest box office fight, but would be the hardest to make, is the Jake Paul fight. Um, I think on paper, that would be the most winnable fight for Conor McGregor. I think it would be the biggest payday for Conor McGregor. And of course, it eliminates all risk with regard to his, his leg and you know the healing process and building all of that up again. And it also means that by the time he's through that, which I'm, I, if he fought Jake Paul, I think he'd beat Jake Paul. Um, however, it, sort of coming through the other side of that, it, it buys him time and it gives him a win. And then he can jump straight back into the UFC on the crest of a wave, fight Dustin Poirier, fight whoever, and then off he goes again. But the issue with that fight is Jake Paul is contracted to Showtime. Showtime and the UFC, ever since May Mac, not exactly on each other's Christmas card list, right? So that would require a fair amount of... Uh, I mean, you did Kofi Annan drafted in to sort of mediate and get them back around the table again. But um, they did it for the Mayweather fight. But uh, I don't know if... Da I, I vaguely recall Dana saying he never wanted to work with Steven Espinosa again. I, I'm sure I read that somewhere uh, back, back, back in the day. But who knows? But So I think that one would be the hardest one to do. But I think a little busman's holiday into boxing would give McGregor the opportunity to earn a colossal payday, wouldn't risk any kind of healing process with his leg, and would also fill the time while the lightweight title picture works itself out as well. So, Because I don't envisage Poirier fighting Charles Oliveira until 
October at the earliest, right? So by then, McGregor will probably be back in some sort of training. Not not full training, but he'll be doing strength and conditioning, I would imagine. So, um, so who knows? Who knows? He's a man... This is the thing, right? He could lose five in a row. He'll have like he'll still have a queue of people who want to fight him. So, um, you know, Tony Ferguson is a fight that is always there, that has always been kind of under the periphery. That Ferguson versus McGregor is a sellable fight. Um, you mentioned the Nate Diaz fight. That's the common sense fight, right? Jorge Masvidal is a fight that would definitely get everybody excited. And anybody else who's a contender at 155, Michael Chandler, people like this. So there's all sorts of options around. So, um, as you say, I think he needs to he needs to get himself back to 100, percent and then and then go from there. But the Poirier fight, I would imagine we won't see this side of 2022. I think we would see that next year. But uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you is trash talk and selling fights is something that we talk about all the time on this show and making the most of your time on the microphone and basically booking your next fight being in the, in in a new cycle making sure that when your name comes up people care about what your next fight is going to be or how you're going to do whether they hate you or love you the fact that they're tuning in to watch you is what's important did conor mcgregor go too far with his comments this week or do you think there is no there is no uh, boundary when it comes to this sort of thing in mixed martial arts because he went in he, he went to a place where very very few people have ever been before uh there's been a there's been a suggestion that he was he was threatening poirier and his wife uh with their lives while he was sat there on the side of the cage i've seen the clip and it's kind of hard to make out exactly what he was saying but um that's the suggestion i mean what do you make of that i think sometimes it's a it's a hard thing to i guess debate and discuss because on the one side i'm thinking to myself all's fair in love and fight promotion but in the after i mean and again going back to and even ronda rousey tweeted about this conor mcgregor in the immediate aftermath of the fight is lying there on the ground and he's already planting the seeds for the next fight that's where his mindset is at um i think it's been a little bit nasty and hard to stomach going back to the khabib fight if i'm being fair you know, this isn't, you know, anything that's new or shocking from Connor's perspective in terms of things he's saying uh, and what he believes he needs to say to get himself in the mindset. He's, he says it, he is completely ruthless. But then we've seen the nice guy, Connor, in the Dustin Poirier fight back in January, in the Donald Cerrone fight early last year. And then the fans don't really want that. They want the old Connor back. But, you know, I feel like when Connor first burst onto the scene, he was just like, so fresh and and everything was just like so new and innovative and things we hadn't seen before when it came to fight promotion he was so creative and witty um and I th i've seen a lot of people talk about how some of the stuff he was saying at the press conference you know leading up to this fight last week was kind of like the greatest hits of conor mcgregor being played you know i actually thought the um you know what he said from a promotional standpoint, at the ceremonial weigh-ins, I thought that was a really good promo. I know, I know a lot of people didn't like it. I actually thought that he really was like, and you could tell how like focused he was. He wasn't even looking at the camera. He was so laser focused on Dustin Poirier. You know, that message was for Dustin, and he had no idea that there was like 10, 15,000 other people probably, you know, in the arena. Um, but yeah, look, that that is part and parcel of the Conor McGregor experience. 
Some people love it. Some people hate it. I don't think he's going to change some of the, again, if you go to a social media account right now, you can already see it, you know, in his eyes and his energy. He's lying there just what minutes or hours removed from leg surgery. And he's already talking up some smack about Dustin Poirier and how it's an illegitimate win. And he's going to be back and, and all the rest of it. So it is what it is, Simon. That's, that's Conor McGregor. He's not the first. He's not the last. And let's be honest. There's a lot of other fighters, Michael Bisping, you know, a, a lot of other fighters that have done and said some nasty stuff that we don't agree with. Okay. This is not exclusive to Conor McGregor, but this is the fight game. And I, and I think now more so than ever, a lot of fighters perhaps go beyond the the, the, the barrier thinking it's okay um, and thinking that it's, you know, something that will get them headlines and help promote the fight. Um, but I think for the most part, the majority of fans like to see when it's original, when it's authentic, when it's, you know, there's always, there's a million different ways to needle someone and promote a fight and get inside their heads without having to talk about race and their wives and family and killing them in their sleep and, and all that kind of garbage. Um, so yeah, most of that didn't really resonate well with me, but like I said, you know, this is a fight game and it is what it is. This is this is part of the business that we're involved with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, f- for me, I don't, I don't think he wants to kill Dustin Poirier and his wife. I don't, I wouldn't think that for a second. What I think is he's run out of ideas. Honestly, I think he's run out of ideas. You said how fresh and original and witty and, and sharp he was when he came onto the scene. The thing is, we've seen years of this now. And in order to stay at the top of his game, you've got to keep reinventing yourself and doing, going up a level. I mean, there isn't that much higher you can go from death threats, really, or lower is probably a better way of putting it. But, you know, and, and if you can't knock a man out of his game by threatening his life, um, like he, he threatened, he told Dustin Poirier, you're dead in the octagon on Saturday night. Um, and Dustin Poirier went out there and, and beat him up. And got a ten eight on two on two scorecards, so that that was clearly not successful, right? So he's now going after his wife even more than he did beforehand. So that's where we're going with this, and I don't like it. I don't think it's appropriate, and I, th- I do think that the UFC needs to have a word with him. I don't think they will, um, but I think there is a line there. Dana in the press conference said, "You know, we shouldn't be going down that down that route. You know, we shouldn't be bringing family into it." And he's dead right. So. You know, whether they're going to have a gentle word with him or they're going to talk to his management and say, look, you know, you've got to reel your boy in a little bit here. Um, we're on ESPN, right? We're on ESPN. We're on the biggest platform for sport on the planet. Um, we can't be celebrating someone who's going around saying this sort of stuff. So I do think there is a certain amount of uh, of uh, decency that needs to be maintained. Even though this is the roughest, toughest uh, sport on the planet, I do still think that there's an element that needs to be needs to be kept an eye on. So, um, but yeah, I do think it's a man who's running out of ideas and don't expect him to shut up for a while because he can't, he can't get in there and compete for a while. He's going to be a busy man on social media, just keeping his name out there, chipping away at Poirier, chipping away at anybody else. He might rekindle the Nate Diaz stuff. He might rekindle the Floyd Mayweather stuff. He may start talking about Manny Pacquiao or whoever. Listen out for the names that he starts talking about because these are the people that he's going to be looking to fight. So, um, 
you know, he ain't going to be gone for long. He's going to be back soon, and it's going to be a huge occasion when he comes back. If he fights Poirier again, do I think it's going to be any different? Having seen him fight him twice in the last calendar year, I don't think it will be. Uh, I said I thought he would win. I then said before fight night that I thought he'd, he'd, uh, he was rattled somewhat, somewhat shook because he couldn't get Poirier out of his game. And uh, having seen it twice now, I think Dustin Poirier's got his number. So we will see what happens with Conor McGregor. Let's talk Dustin Poirier before we move on, Sandu. It seems pretty straightforward what's next for him, right? It's a title shot against Charles Oliveira. Oliveira is one of the most underrated elite level fighters on the planet. He's always been there or thereabouts. Like the biggest problem he had was someone convincing him that he was a UFC lightweight and that he isn't a 145 pound fighter. He still thinks he's a 145 pound fighter, which is insane. Um, but he's now the undisputed lightweight champion of the world. He is outstanding. He doesn't speak much English, which I think doesn't help him in terms of his, his public uh, persona when it comes to uh, English-speaking fans. But his performances speak for themselves. He's a finisher. Dustin Poirier faces him next. Who's the favourite for that fight? Well, I can tell you who the bookie's favourite is, and it's Dustin Poirier. The odds got released, in, I think, immediately after the fight ended. Sometimes I don't know how... These bookies do it, Simon. And uh, I think you might have a bit more knowledge than I do. But, man, they are quick to, to turn around odds and get them out, um, especially in the in the, the heat of the moment and um, when there's, like, obviously uh, a, a massive fight taking place. And So right now, as things currently stand, we have Dustin Poirier as the favorite, and he is a minus 180. So that is 5 to 9. I don't know how to say the brackets, Simon. Sorry, you have to help yeah. me out with that. But um, and Charles Oliveira is a plus one fifty-five. I've become more North Americanized since I moved here, Simon. When it comes to converting um, those American odds to English odds is a pain in the backside. I, I can yeah, I can never remember because when I used to work in in the betting industry years ago, it was it was fractions or decimals. So mm. Dustin Poirier, what do you say he is one? So Dustin Poirier right now is a minus 180. Okay. Minus 180 works out at uh, 16 to 9 on, or 1.56 if you're betting in the, in the old uh, decimal. It's basically, it means he's a 64% chance of victory. That's what that means. Right. 64% and Charles, chance of victory. And Charles Oliver is a, a plus 155. So those are the odds from the the betting outlets um or from bet online specifically it's it's tough man i mean we're talking about two of the best lightweights in the world uh dustin poirier has had an incredible run over the last few years i mean some of the names he's crossed off the list i mean you take away the loss to khabib right you put that to a side and we're talking about arguably the greatest lightweight of all time He's beaten Conor McGregor twice, Dan Hooker, Max Holloway, Eddie Alvarez, Justin Gaethje, Anthony Pettis. I mean, come on. Jesus Christ. What a lineup. What a murderer's row. And, and you know, Charles Oliveira, give credit to him as well. I mean, you know, he's now finally got the credit he deserves after years of putting in the work. And, you know, both of them, both of them have had that incredible journey in the UFC where they've had the ups and downs and they finally put things together. Charles Oliveira, man. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine fight win streak leading to 
the championship. And his, his last couple of victories, Kevin Lee, Tony Ferguson, Michael Chandler, it doesn't get any better than that. I think it's going to be really tough to call, Simon. Really, really difficult. Um, I will say this, though. I feel like we are now in a situation where male fighter of the year is a two-horse race. I think it's a, it's a flip of the coin, depending on what happens in the second half of this year between Dustin Poirier and Kamaru Usman. Kamara Usman's 2021 has already produced a TKO victory over Gilbert Burns and a knockout victory over Jorge Masvidal. Dustin Poy has beaten the biggest star in the sport's history twice in Conor McGregor, and they've both been by finish. You know, if Dustin Poirier defeats Charles Oliveira and becomes UFC lightweight champion, he's got a fantastic case to be fighter of the year. If Kamara Usman defeats... Colby Covington, which is you know, what, what looks to be his next opponent. We'll see what happens there. For a second time, he's got a fantastic case to be fighter of the year. So an embarrassment of riches when it comes to elite-level fighters holding championships and putting together an incredible year this year. Um, but to answer your question, um, and not to skirt around it too much, um, I think I'm going to pick Dustin Poirier, Simon. And, and, I, and I think it's appropriate that he is the favorite. You know, we already, we already knew, just given the, the competition he's beaten, that physically, from a skill set standpoint, he's got what it takes. But I have been so impressed with how he has handled the pressure that comes with the magnitude of the moment that is fighting Conor McGregor, way more so than the Abu Dhabi fight. What he had to go through mentally and emotionally to, to be focused throughout fight week a packed arena, Las Vegas. This is big time stuff. And, you know, I think Dana White said this was trending towards 1.7 million pay-per-view buys. So one of the biggest selling pay-per-views in UFC history. For him to come through the other end, the other side, to end, well, maybe not end, but, you know, lead this saga 2-1 and close out the trilogy as it currently stands. And to 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 carry out the, the, the interviews and the press conference with all the class in the world, he's now got all his attention focused on a UFC lightweight championship belt. And the fact that he stumbled there once before already, having fallen short in the Khabib fight, will give him all the motivation in the world. And so, yeah, there you go, Simon. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my stake in the ground right now. I am picking Dustin Poirier to beat Charles Oliveira when they inevitably will meet later on this year. It's going to be an incredible fight. I mean, you look at Dustin Poirier's resume, it's insane. In the last four years, he's fought nine times and eight of those nine fights have come against UFC champions in some way, shape or form. He's fought Eddie Alvarez twice. He's fought Conor McGregor twice. He's fought Max Holloway. He's fought Justin Gaethje. And of course, the one defeat against Khabib Nurmagomedov. The only guy he fought that didn't, who wasn't either a champion or a former champion, was Dan Hooker. That's literally it. He's, he's been in there with the best of the best for the last four years. This is a man who, you know, he says uh, paid in full is one of his uh, phrases that he likes to use. He has absolutely uh, done that over the course of the last four years. He deserves he deserves all the plaudits that he's getting and uh, he deserves that shot belt. But then you look at Charles Oliveira. Charles Oliveira's on a nine fight win streak, Sandu. And in those nine fights, eight of them have been finishes. Literally the only person he didn't finish was Tony Ferguson. Uh, last December at UFC 256. Everybody else, he's getting them out there. Submissions, TKOs, knockouts, you name it. 
He's done it. And he finished Michael Chandler at UFC 262 back in May to win the vacant title. This is a coin flip of a fight for me. I think push comes to shove. I think I'd go with Dustin Poirier. I just think, I think he has the edge when it comes to the big fight experience. He's been in these big main event fights. He's been in these big uh, showpiece occasions against McGregor. He's been in there with Khabib. And uh, I think he's been battle tested at the highest level more than Charles Oliveira. Um, he's going to be incredibly dangerous, Charles Oliveira. He's obviously the champion, but uh, it will be very interesting to see how Oliveira approaches it from a mental standpoint. Going in as a challenger, you've got to go in there and take the title from the champion. But now you've got to defend the belt. And from a mental standpoint, sometimes that, that changes something in a fighter's mindset. You saw what happened with Tyron Woodley. Tyron Woodley used to tear through people as a, as a contender. He got the belt and all of a sudden he started fighting completely differently to the to the way that he actually got to the top. And he fought like a man trying to defend rather than a man trying to win. And I think we didn't see the best of Tyron because of that. Um, but uh, you compare that with Kamara Usman. Kamara Usman is still fighting like a man who's a challenger in every title fight you see. And that's why he's getting those finishes. So um, that fight is going to be an absolute banger. That might even... That might even be one that we see, you know, they might even hold it off to, to towards the end of the year, that big end of year card that the UFC always used to like to do in December. Um, that might not be a bad, a bad landing spot for those two. Um, but then they might, they might say, no, book it early as possible because you never know who might be available by the end of the year. So um, yeah, interesting to see how that all pans out, but so many different talking points, so many different, angles you can go at this um from just one fight at ufc 264 but there were other there was other craziness going on on the fight card we had the co-main event which was gilbert burns and stephen thompson that was probably the one dud on the uh, on 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 the main card burns got the job done by decision did what he needed to do to beat wonderboy thompson it's almost impossible to look good against Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. And uh, I think Burns deserves a little bit more credit than he's getting. Um, but uh, to get the job done and to outpoint Wonderboy over three rounds is no mean feat. I thought he did a good job, Sandy. What did you make of it? I was really impressed. I know it wasn't the most exciting fight of all time, but Gilbert Burns is coming off a loss to Kamaru Usman from earlier this year, a UFC welterweight championship fight something that he's been dreaming of and for him to bounce back and not just bounce back but take arguably the toughest fight outside of fighting Kamara Usman in the welterweight division Stephen Wonderboy Thompson that's been avoided by a lot of the roster left right and center he's been trying to get a fight for such a long time and to like you said outpoint him over the course of three rounds all the respect in the world to Gilbert Burns and I think unfortunately Simon I think uh, Steve, that's, that's the end of the road for Stephen Thompson's hopes of perhaps one day fighting for a UFC welterweight championship again. Stranger things have happened. Anything can happen. But I just look at his age and look at his recent form. He's 38 and he's been, what, one, two, three, four losses and three wins from his last seven. Not great form, is it? So, um, and he's the nicest guy in the world. He's the NMF and, and all the rest of it. You know, he, he's a real credit to uh, the, the real good side of this sport and um yeah I, I just don't i just don't see him i don't see a path to a, a championship uh, title fight again for him and on the flip side this is exactly what the doctor ordered for gilbert burns because he's still in the mix in the, at the top end of that welterweight division he's bounced back 
He's got a win under his belt, and it's onwards and upwards now for, for Gilbert Burns. Yeah, it's a very interesting situation. Gilbert Burns, I thought, quite smartly, uh, rather than zeroing in on just one name during his post-fight press conference, he knows he's not getting a title fight straight away. You know, he got knocked out by the champion less than a year ago. So he knows that. So what does he do? Calls out every other contender. <laughs> calls out every other contender and also calls out Nate Diaz. So um, so he, he call, I think he called out Colby, he called out Leon, he called out uh, Masvidal. He he wants anybody. Um, who should who should he fight next? It's really difficult because things are far from set. Uh, we know Col- sorry he didn't call out Colby. Colby's fighting Kamaru, so Colby's going to fight Kamaru for the belt. Leon Edwards is available. Jorge Masvidal is available. Which of those two, if if, if it's going to be one of those two, do you think it should be? Um, try and match make the top of that division for us because there's a lot there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uncertainty over who's next in line. Leon certainly got the uh, the body of work. Masvidal's got the star power, and Gilbert Burns has just picked up a win over Wonder Boy, and he's in the mix as well. So, how do you how do you how do you sort all this out, Sandu? It's a tough one because we don't know what the situation is with Kamara Usman and who he's going to be fighting next. You know, we keep hearing reports that it's Colby Covington. I think. Once that is locked in and solidified, then we'll have a bit of a trickle-down effect of what's next. Um, and and if Leon Edwards is going to decide to wait or whether he wants to remain active, I said this immediately um, you know, after his win over Nate Diaz. And I, and I said, look, he's already we already know he's done more than enough to fight for the t- championship right now, but it's going to be completely up to him if he wants to remain active or if he wants us to chill on the sidelines. And if he chills on the sidelines and Kamara Usman ends up fighting Colby Covington, there are a whole lot of variables that will be up in the air and it's, it's, it's going to be another tough spot for him. So I've always been adamant that I, th- I think that the best thing for him to do if if the UFC make Kamara Usman versus Colby Covington too is fight Jorge Masvidal because it just like the Nate Diaz fight would be a, a, a massive blockbuster fight, a big name, it allows more people to get to know you, um, and uh, you know it'll keep you busy, keep you active, and at the same time helps you check off a bit of a story um, that that you know came up and about uh, the incident backstage between him and Jorge Masvidal in London. Um, bringing it back to Gilbert Burns though Simon now correct me if I'm wrong Michael Chiesa is going to be fighting Vincente Luque soon correct yeah I think I think Burns should fight the winner of that fight I just don't see him getting the Jorge Masvidal fight if I'm being honest with you I don't see him fighting Colby Covington because I feel like that's going to be something that GFC are going to push for Kamaru and I don't really want to see him fight Leon Edwards because I feel like it's it's a scary fight for Leon to be honest with you. Leon Edwards fighting someone of the caliber of Gilbert Burns and taking a loss would just ruin all the momentum and all the steam and completely derail his chances if he was to take a loss um, to fight for the title and, and like I said, I don't think Leon Edwards needs to fight anyone to earn a title shot. He's already done that. I only the only reason for Leon to take a fight would be to stay busy and stay active and to take an opportunity for a big payday and and to fight someone you know that's got a real 
real name and a legitimate draw on the business. And that's why the only fight Leon should even consider taking if he wants to fight is Jorge Masvidal. So for me, Burns should fight Vicente Luque or Michael Chiesa next. Yeah, I kind of like that. I mean, Luque and uh, Ma uh, Maverick, Michael Chiesa, are going to face off at UFC 265 uh, on the undercard of the Derek Lewis-Cyril Gann fight, which is going to take place on uh, August the 7th. Uh, so uh, that's not too far away. That's, that's less than a month away. So it won't be long until we have a winner. It will be slightly complicated if Vicente Luque wins that fight because Luque and Gilbert Burns both train out of the same gym, Sanford MMA, uh, down there in, in Florida. So, um, and obviously we've had recent recent issues with regard to uh, teammates or former teammates fighting. Obviously, uh, Kamara Usman uh, has trained out of there as well. And there was a slight issue with regard to him when he fought Gilbert Burns and there was a bit of a split there and uh, so that was all a bit tricky I don't know if Gilbert Burns will willingly want to put himself in that position again uh, if Vicente Luque wins but you know you got to do what you got to do haven't you this is this is this is the fighting business and you've got to beat the people you got to beat if Michael Chiesa wins that is a much more straightforward fight to book both grapple first fighters as well that would be a very interesting one uh, a jiu-jitsu former jiu-jitsu world champion Gilbert Burns against uh, Michael Chiesa, whose grappling is also outstanding. So that would be a fun one to uh, to see if that one happens. But uh, lots to work out at 170 pounds. And uh, we'll find out how all that goes in the weeks weeks ahead. I think, uh, I think it won't take long for the UFC to start dropping some big fight announcements when it comes to the top of that division. Uh, we need to talk about the heavyweight fight that was on that main card, Sandu. It was probably the feel-good moment of the night. On a night that obviously we had a lot of... A lot of bad blood and negative energy in the main event. Ty Tuivasa. Who doesn't love Ty Bam Bam Tuivasa? He's taking on Greg Hardy, who is a polarizing character at the best of times. And uh, the Prince of War going in there with uh, the big Aussie. And uh, we've had all this bad blood during fight week. You know, death threats. I'm going to kill you, blah, blah, blah. You're dead in the octagon. Ty Tuivasa's walkout music, Wannabe by the Spice Girls. Absolutely brilliant. Walks out to the the least fighty fight song I've ever heard in my life. And the crowd absolutely loves it. They're dancing in the stands. The cameraman were having a field day, picking out all the women dancing while the guys were looking a little bit awkward. It was it, it was great. Two of us are gets in a cage and it's like, okay, we've got two big, strong, heavy-handed heavyweights here. Who's gonna fall first? And Hardy cracks two of us with the right hand, and two of us starts doing river dance with his legs. It was all looking a little bit iffy for him. And Hardy just a bit of a rush of blood to his head, stepped in to try and finish the fight. Two of us are cracks in with the left hand. And sometimes you see these shots where they knock you out instantly. And you you know, the body just sort of falls like a tree. And it was a bit like that. He hit him right in the left eye as well. He absolutely messed up Greg Hardy's left eye. Huge knockout. Crowd goes nuts. And then we get what Taito Ivasa is famous for, don't we? He runs around a bit, waves his hands. Gets on top of the cage. Someone gives him a uh, an Air Jordan trainer and a can of beer. The beer goes in the Air Jordan. Down it goes. Shoey number one. But no, no, no. He wasn't finished with it. That wasn't enough for him. We have the post-fight interview. All the rest of it tells the crowd how much he loves them. And then on the way back, I think I counted two extra Sheweys. The first one, the evil sod who gave him the Shoey, spiked it with some Poiré hot sauce. Uh, which did not go down well with Bam Bam, but he was too euphoric to care. 
Then he had another one. And then just as he was going through the tunnel, there was a guy at the at sort of high up on the balcony who had a beer for him and literally just poured the beer uh, from about 15 feet above two of us's head. And he just sort of leant back, opened his gob and downed a pint from, uh, from long distance. Madness. Absolutely brilliant. Great performance. Even better celebration. And Ty Tuivasa is well and truly back in business. I thought that was that was a feel-good moment of the night. And for me, other than Luke Shaw's goal at the start of the England game, that was my favourite moment of the weekend. Yeah, and he also earned himself a, a $75,000 performance of the night bonus. The bonuses got upped for this particular event. And honestly, Simon, what a great turnaround for Ty Tuivasa. He had, what, a three-fight losing streak. And I think he was cut for a bit or he's on the verge of getting cut or he was cut and then the UFC brought him back at last minute. And here we are. And what, within less than a year since October of last year, three first round finishes, Stefan Struve, Harry Hansaka, and then Greg Hardy. And the Greg Hardy one is the icing on the cake here because it's already a big deal. Cause it's a Conor McGregor pay-per-view, right? So you've got tons of eyeballs on you. Greg Hardy is probably the most hated man in the UFC roster, right? Let's be honest. He is the villain. He got so many boos at the uh, the, the, the ceremonial weigh-ins. He was booed on, on his walkout. And then he gets knocked out. The crowd go crazy. And you everything you mentioned, walking out to the Spice Girls, the, the shoeys, the, the hot sauce shoey. I mean, these are the little things that, you know, can help make a star. And the guy's an action fighter. You know what you're going to get with Taito Yuvasa. He's going to go in there. He's going to try and knock someone's head off as soon as possible. Has he shown me that he's got a, a, a well-rounded game to go all the way to a UFC championship? No, but he think I, I, I feel like he knows that he can be a legitimate you know, name for the UFC to use in, in key markets, in key spots. You know, I can see him headlining a fight night card at some point down the road. I can definitely see him uh, being featured on some big pay-per-view main cards. I could definitely see him having some sort of trajectory, Simon, not too dissimilar from Derek Lewis. A long time ago, I didn't really see Derek Lewis as being someone that could fight for the title. But, you know, he kept getting wins and getting, you know, tougher competition and producing results. And so maybe Ty Tuivasa could have that kind of path as well. Right now, though, like you said, feel-good factor. The fans love him. He's producing all these great moments that go you know, viral on social media. How can you hate on Bam Bam Taito Yuvasa? Top lad. Yeah, it was, it was outstanding. And the thing now is, and, and I guess this is kind of the tricky thing, because you know what you're getting with Tuivasa. You know, if you want to stand up heavyweight war, he's your man, right? If you want to fight, if, if, if you want to see a technical all-round MMA fight at heavyweight, he probably isn't the guy. So matchmaking him is going to be interesting moving forward and dana white uh, in a post-fight press conference was talking about uh, stadium shows he was asked about whether we're going to see a stadium show at allegiant stadium the death star in uh, in las vegas and he said that he's actually not a massive fan of stadium shows he says the fan experience is not as good as when you do the standard arena shows which is normally between 10 and twenty thousand capacity depending on where you go but he did say he would probably reserve the stadium show for when the UFC returns to Australia and they put on a Israel Adesanya versus Robert Whittaker title fight. Title with is absolutely perfect for a co-main event slot. 
or or a main card opener slot you know either either one of those you know he would that in front of eighty thousand fans i don't even know what what the stadium is called these days i think last time we were there i think it was marvel stadium i think last time ufc was there marvel stadium it was called um and uh i think having him in that co-main slot or in a main card opener slot would be absolutely perfect he's he's the ideal warm-up act for a title fight especially in australia so um i don't know how close we are to getting a fight down there in australia um and how close we are to getting that rematch between adesanya and whitaker which is clearly the next fight to make at 155 um but title of us needs to be on that card absolutely so we will see what happens with bam bam moving down the line um this speaking of moving down the line let's let's just wrap things up for this main card uh prior to that heavyweight fight we had uh, a women's catch weight bout as it turned out in the end it's supposed to be bantamweight Arena Aldana versus Yana Kunitskaya. Um, Arena Aldana, superb, superb performance. Yana Kunitskaya is one of the toughest competitors in that 135 pound division. And uh, Aldana finished a huge left hook. Great performance. Uh, four minutes, 35 seconds. She is a dangerous contender and I loved her attitude. She didn't immediately call for a title shot, but she said, I'm, I'm going to get there. You know, I'm not far away. I probably need another win, but... Uh, I, she she really impressed me. I thought this this was a big opportunity on a huge stage, and uh, she took that chance with both hands. It does come obviously with a bit of an asterisk, right? Because she's obviously missed weight, and unfortunately, yeah. there is a a major statistic in in MMA, and majority of the time, the fighters that miss weight win fights. And you know, reading without what you want, right? It, and it, it does take the shine off of wins, in my opinion, and as it should, right? Um, so Irina Aldana has got some work to do, and I think more, you know most importantly, next time she's out, and maybe for a few fights, just make sure she's going to hit the mark, um, because you're not going to get title fights, um, you know, winning fights, but just missing weight by like four, like three and a half pounds or whatever it was. So um, she's got some work to do there. But I think Simon, the opener, the opening fight of that main card is what we really need to talk about, right? I mean, how about Chris Moutinho stepping up on short notice and putting on a gutsy, determined, brave effort in the face of what has now become the most strikes landed by a fighter in a bantamweight fight ever in the onslaught that was the Sugar Show, Sugar Sean O'Malley, who was dribbling an invisible basketball as he was fainting and and handing out his shots but what a blinder of an opening fight that was asai it was it was it was it was it was crazy it was it was such a good spectacle to watch it was also a complete and utter mismatch let's be honest right like chris Moutinho, unless he caught sean o'malley napping uh with a with you know with a stray hook he was never winning that fight there was you know there was clearly an absolute chasm it wasn't a skills gap it was a chasm between the two Martino's um just toughness uh was 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 enough to keep him in the fight and as the fight went on he actually started to have a little bit more success and started to land a few shots of his own and the crowd were getting into it i think first round it was it was a bit of an exhibition second round by the end of the round, Martinio was sort of giving as good as he got almost. You know, he was really having a go. Um, you know, his chin deserved a performance bonus on its own, to be honest, taking all those shots. But 
the question here is the way the fight ended. And I didn't comment on this online. I thought I'd save it for the podcast because just looking at the reactions of people, even in the media, people were split. There were some people saying, because Herb Dean stopped in and, sorry, stepped in and stopped the fight with 27 seconds left. Uh, Mutinio did not look like he was close to being knocked out. Let's be honest. He wasn't, he wasn't stumbling. He wasn't completely bamboozled, but he was getting hit repeatedly and cleanly. Is that a good stoppage? Or should he have been allowed, as so many people I've seen online said, should he have been allowed to go all the way to the end and uh, get that badge of honour of, of making it all the way to the final the final bell, so to speak? Personally, Herb Dean comes in for quite a bit of stick sometimes, and I've been, I've been one of the people who's sort of dished a little bit of criticism his way. But it's always been for him not reacting fast enough. It's always been for him not being decisive enough when action needs to be taken. And I actually think that in this situation, Herb Dean was right. I think Herb Dean did the right thing to stop the fight. Arguably, he could have stopped it even earlier. I think the thing that muddies the waters is there were only 27 seconds left. It's like, well, is anything going to happen in those 27 seconds that's really going to make, make it any worse? That's what people who would argue against the stoppage would say. He could have stopped that fight at any point in that round um under the criteria under which he stopped it so um i think it's just the fact it was so close to the end that it was like oh it was just such a disappointment you know it's sort of like popping the balloon a little bit but um i've got no qualms with the stoppage at all i think you know chris Martino was not going to win that fight and he was getting hit a lot and uh you know it was almost like a boxing stoppage you see it quite a lot in boxing you know and quite often they'll say um the referee's Referee deemed he was unfit to continue or the commentators would say he's seen enough. He's taken enough punishment and all that sort of stuff. That's what we saw. So my personal view, no problem with the stoppage. Am I disappointed for Chris Martino? Do I think he could have got to the end? Absolutely, I do. So I'm kind of I'm kind of torn either way, but I'm not going to criticise that stoppage. I thought it was fair. What did you, what did you make of it? Look, Simon, I think we, we, we both agree that the third man in the cage, the referee's job is by far the most difficult job um, in MMA when it comes to officiating. And man, it, it was tough because I agree, had he stopped it maybe sooner, I think it would have been easier to stomach and, you know, you know, look, you maybe two minutes in the third round, you know, you're, you're, you're continuing to take punishment. There's no point. I'm going to stop the fight with 27 seconds left though. I think at that stage, I think you're almost robbing this man of his moment. Because had he, you know, seen it out until the end of that third round, that place, the roof would have blown off that place because people were so enamored by what this guy was bringing to the, to the table and how gutsy he was. And, you know, you saw what Sugar Sean O'Malley said in, in, in his post-fight interview. You know, he was one tough mother effer. And, um, you know, the silver lining here is... And I said this immediately, and I, I had people actually you know, reply to my tweet as if I was crazy or something. I said, listen, I hope Chris Motinho gets some sort of performance of the night bonus for stepping up on short, short notice, right? Like, there is no criteria for what a performance of the night bonus entails. It could be a number of different things. And it doesn't always have to be, you know, someone that won the fight. 
But the fact that he stepped up on short notice, fought one of the best bantamweights in the world on the, the grandest stage of them all in Las Vegas in the fight capital of the world on a Conor McGregor card and I packed out T-Mobile Arena. You're opening the show. that You're opening the main card. And not to, I guess, do himself any disservice. He, you know, he, he was coming forward. He was trying his best. He was trying to stay active and land shots. And, you know, he walked away. And, and I think they kind of gave that the, the fight of the night even though it was a very one-sided fight in many respects. But, uh, but yeah, I'm glad he got a 75K bonus. That'll do him just, just uh, you know, nicely in terms of, you know, what his, um, I guess, signing contract would have been opening. They usually give him, what, 12 and 12 or something like that. Um, so that 75K, $75,000 would, uh, will definitely help his bank account there. But Chris Martini has already become, I've seen it online, online um, Simon, He's already become a fan favorite. People are already looking forward to seeing him fight again. And he's taken the loss really, really well. He's already busting out memes and, and all the rest of it. And so ultimately, he's, you know, he didn't win the fight. It's a, it's a loss on his record. But I think he's come out of this event a, a massive winner. And full camp Chris Martino and built up nicely, you know, getting um, proper matchmaking now. Now he's in the UFC. I can't wait to see what the ceiling is with this guy. Yeah. I mean, give you... Just, just to put that into perspective, if he's on twelve, if if he's on twelve and twelve, getting that bonus basically means that's the equivalent of him winning six fights in the UFC on the, on on under those contract terms. That's huge for him. That's you think how how much he would have to do to earn that amount of money in win bonuses, or you know even to have that many fights. You know if he has that many fights and doesn't win, you know um, to get that in one lump first time off. Uh, I think he's just won himself a lot of fans, and I think I think the UFC matchmakers will be happy with him. He went in there and did him a solid. Uh, it wouldn't have been his intention, but his toughness made Sugar Sean O'Malley look really good as well, because it wasn't just a quick knockout performance and job done. O'Malley had to had to throw some shots. He had to beat some records, and uh, you know we got to see more of O'Malley striking, which only makes us more excited for what he might be able to do. A little bit later this year as he starts to chase down some of the contenders at 135 pounds i think it was a win-win for everybody uh the only disappointment for martinio of course he didn't get to the final bell that's that's literally it um but the 75k i'm sure will have uh will have softened the blow just a little bit so uh yeah absolutely superb main card i know that co-main event might not have been the barn burner that that we saw elsewhere but I thought that was an important fight for the division and a really important and impressive win for Gilbert Burns, if not the most exciting. And everything else, it was finishes all the way, wasn't it? Third round finish for O'Malley, first round finishes for Aldana, Tuivasa, and of course, in the main event, Dustin Poirier. Uh, Tuivasa got himself a performance of the night bonus as well for his win uh, and possibly for his celebration as well. Um, I assume they're going to deduct some of that for the cleaning bill. Uh, for the octagon and all that stuff. There's a lot of beer flying around. But uh, the other person who picked up a, a performance of the night bonus was former KSW champion Drikas Duplessis, who scored a really good knockout of Trevin Giles in the opening fight of the televised prelims. He did really well. That was a really good performance from him. I'm a big fan of his work. I think he's, he's an exciting fighter. And I think once the UFC start getting up and running in Europe... He might be a name that we see on some fight cards over in our neck of the woods. So um, if you're not already 
genned up on uh, Drikus Duplessis. Look up some of his back catalogue. Look up some of his fights in uh, in KSW and uh, and for EFC. He was a champion for EFC in South Africa as well. So um, yeah, we had some good stuff on Saturday night. Ilya Tapuria uh, picked up a win over Ryan Hall, first round finish. Uh, he's still unbeaten. So lots going on, Sandu. It was it was a big event and a good event. I know it was all about the main event. That's obviously the big talking point going in, and it's even more of a talking point coming out. But um, if we're grading that UFC 264 event, I think uh, pretty damn good, I would say. What do you reckon? Yeah, one of the biggest selling pay-per-views of all time. A lot of eyeballs. Social media traffic was off the charts. We've got tons of stories. We've got prospects. Got made, you know, made a name for themselves. And you know, I think some of the biggest winners coming out of this event, outside of obviously Dustin Poirier, I think are you know the likes of Sugar Sean O'Malley. It was a, a, more of a showcase more than anything else, and big win for him. Tied to Yuvasa, man. I mean, I think, like you said, Simon, the feel-good story um, of the of the of the event and of the night, and um, you know, Ilya Tupuria and DDP Drikas Duplessis, two names. I think Michelle Pereira. You know, even though the decision put on a a classic Michelle Pereira performance against Nico Price as well, and credit to Max Griffin. Um, for getting a win over Carlos Conde, who had been looking pretty good as of late. Um, but I think it's time for Carlos Conde uh, and the UFC to to start putting him in the mix with the likes of Nick Diaz, Robbie Lawler. I think you know him fighting the young guns isn't going to be a good look for him and not a good showcase for, for his skill set at this stage of his career. Um, but yeah, overall, Simon, can't complain. Obviously... You know, my my mind keeps going to the fact that unfortunately, I hated the fact that the main event ended because Conor McGregor broke his leg and snapped you know uh, the bottom part of his leg and you know he's got surgery now. Just uh, it's unfortunate that that's how the event ended. But um, overall, I, I don't know how this isn't anything you know other than an absolute win for for the UFC in terms of having a big July 4th weekend event take place in Las Vegas, you know, back back home in a packed-out T-Mobile arena. And um, and I think from here on out, all these pay-per-views for the rest of the year are going to have that big special feel with packed-out arenas and rabid fans in attendance. So, yeah, good times. Yeah, and uh, some, of the, some of the things I've heard from people who are in the arena on fight night is that the atmosphere was like one of the best that experienced at a UFC event. Like the crowd were going absolutely mad for it. It was a huge event. The crowd delivered. Um, I'm a bit disappointed in myself, Losandu. How how have I not noticed that Drikas Duplessis is DDP? How did we, how, how how have I not been all over this already? Um, I know his nickname <laughs> is, is his nickname is Still Knox, uh, but DDP is so much better. You know, I think someone needs to have a chat with him. Um, if he ever ends up on a European card and I end up talking to him, I'm going to put that to him and say, "Look, I know you got your nickname. You want to you want to be bigger with the uh, with the American fans and all the wrestling fans within within MMA. DDP's got to be the way forward. You know, just a bit of friendly, bit of friendly advice. I have to give credit to one Chad Dundas. He's the one that tweeted um, that we should be calling him DDP from now on. And I think everyone just kind of like, how have we not all clocked yeah. that already? So credit to Chad Dundas. I saw him tweet that. And I thought, bang on. That's an absolute win. He is DDP moving forward for everyone now. 
It has to be. It absolutely has to be. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing what's next for him as he moves up the uh, the UFC middleweight division. It was a superb event all around, and we've got more coming down the line as well. It's a double event weekend. We have Bellator in action on Friday night. Bellator 262 will be live uh, here in the UK on uh, BBC iPlayer. Uh, I'll be on. Uh, I'll be on report duty for that. Hopefully, um, Juliana Velasquez will look to put the women's flyweight title on the line in her maiden uh, title defence against the Netherlands' Denise Kielholtz, who uh, has already won championship gold for Bellator as a kickboxer. Now she's going to try and do it in mixed martial arts. That's the main event. Matt Mitrione takes on uh, Tyrell Fortune in the co-main event. England's own Linton Vassell takes on Marcelo Gome. Uh, on the main card as well so that's going to be friday night and uh, as i say that'll be uh, that'll be showtime uh, over in the states and bbc iplayer uh, here in the uk that sets things up nicely for saturday night they're back at the apex sandu on saturday night so it's gonna be huge packed arena crowd this past weekend to the the intimate surrounds of the ufc apex um, I don't know whether they're going to start letting fans in there. I know Dana had mentioned that previously, that they're going to investigate possibly letting a few fans in. Um, but uh, I think for now, it'll probably be a behind-closed-doors event. And it's a big event for Islam Makachev. He's going to be headlining for the first time in his UFC career. He takes on Tiago Moises uh, in a big fight at lightweight. If Makachev wins, this is a real opportunity for him. This is kind of a showcase uh, opportunity for him. Moises is a very, very good season campaigner uh, and dangerous in all areas. But Makachev has been considered by many to be kind of the uh, the sort of the uncrowned successor to Khabib Nurmagomedov at 155 pounds. Daniel Cormier on the broadcast on Saturday night even said that he thinks Makachev should be the number one contender right now at 155 pounds. This is his chance to prove it. No one at the very top of the division seems to want to fight this man. If he goes out there and smokes Thiago Moises on Saturday night and makes a bit of noise on the microphone, I don't think there could be any more denying the man. He will need to be in there with one of the biggest names in the 155-pound division next. So it's going to be a big one for Islam, that's for sure. Yeah, big fight. And I'm already kind of thinking if he wins, Simon, I think RDA might be a good fight for him next if he wins because 155 is absolutely stacked. RDA just cut weight as a potential backup fighter. So he's put in a camp. Um for, for UFC 264, which, you know, he wasn't required to step up uh, because everything went smoothly there. But just looking at the rankings right now, Simon, you've got Islam Makachev ranked number nine. Thiago Moises is ranked number 14. So he's fighting someone that's behind him. A win here. RDA is at number seven. I think that would be a great fight. And you know what? If it's not that one, how about Tony Ferguson? You want to rattle up a bit of the old, uh, you know, rivalry between Tony and Khabib? Why not have Khabib's successor come in and fight Tony Ferguson. I think that would be a lot of fun as well. So I win here for Islam, and I, th I feel like then, you know, the momentum is really going to start to begin. I don't, I, don't, I don't agree with the idea of him being ready for a title shot right now. No. There are a lot of fighters, you know, ahead of him in the pecking order that A, deserve a title shot, and B, he needs to beat uh, in order to be, you know, worthy of fighting for a championship right now. And plus, you know, I think his story still needs to be told. I think he needs to um, get himself out there and headlining a fight night card uh, in the apex will be just what the doctor ordered, especially if he puts on uh, a good result. And I think, honestly, Simon, for me personally, looking at this card, outside of that main event, the biggest story this weekend is the return of one Misha Cupcake 
Tate, having had a look at her social media recently, man, she is looking in incredible condition. Veins popping out of her muscles and all the rest of it. I mean, she has put in some serious work in this camp. So she looks to be uh, in, in tip-top condition, you know, making her comeback right now. And you know what, Simon? She hasn't fought since November of 2016. If she can come back and just get this one win this weekend, I feel like that is all she needs. She beats Marion Renault. I feel like the fact that she never fought, had a rematch against Amanda Nunes and the fact that Amanda Nunes you know, is looking for big-name fights in a division where she's run through the competition, that'll be um, one I think the UFC would make very, very easily. So that's a big story this week, and it's the return of Misha Tate. Yeah, I'm, I said to you just before we hit record, actually, I'm slightly surprised that they haven't looked to bring Misha back on a on a big arena card, on a pay-per-view card with crowds. I just think she is a draw. You know, she is a draw. People love Misha. And uh, I was slightly surprised that, um, you know, maybe the dates just didn't line up and it wasn't possible to get her on the card this past weekend. But um, I'm slightly surprised that her comeback is in go effectively going to be in an empty room. Uh at the UFC Apex this Saturday night. But it's a big fight against Marion Renault, And uh, as you say, it wouldn't surprise either of us. If she gets a big win, expect her to be right back in there again, uh, potentially against Amanda Nunes. Um, looking at looking at uh, the Islam Makachev thing very briefly, it's hard because how can you how can you be highly ranked if no one at the top of the rankings will accept a fight with you? That's kind of where we are with Makachev right now. I love the Tony Ferguson idea. I just love the dynamic of it because Khabib will be in Islam Makachev's corner. Um, and that just that just adds to the intrigue. It just adds to the spice and will make that fight even more watchable uh, than it is on paper. So, um, But of course, he's got to get past Thiago Moises first. So uh, if he does that Saturday night, who knows? There are options. Another name I would chuck in as a potential next opponent is Michael Chandler. Uh, Michael Chandler obviously exploded into the UFC, earned a title shot because he absolutely ran through Dan Hooker, earned a title shot, was doing pretty well against Charles Oliveira, then got caught and lost. So now he's got to build back again. He's got to work his way back up. If no one else will fight Makachev, maybe Chandler has to beat Makachev to get a title shot. Um, so who knows? You know, there are so many moving parts at 155 pounds. Uh, we know Dustin Poirier is next. Justin Gaethje needs to get a fight at some point. I mean, the man seems to have been out for ages, not necessarily through his own design. So he needs to be in, in a fight soon. Benil Dariush has quietly moved his way into contention as well. So all manner of different possibilities for uh, the UFC matchmakers as they look to look to keep this train rolling at 155 pounds. And uh, we'll find out whether Islam Makachev is going to be right there in the mix uh, after Saturday night, just taking a quick scan through the rest of the card. Jeremy Stevens fighting at 155 against Mateus Gamrot, the former KSW champion. That'll be a decent fight. Daniel Rodriguez is back in action this weekend. He's always good to watch. And uh, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting an interesting weekend. A lot of uh, prospects looking to move their way up the order. Khalid Taha from uh, from Germany. He'll look to pick up a win against Sergey Morozov. So there's, there's, there's some fights. If you're someone who likes to see the next generation of UFC stars, who's going to break from the pack and work their way into contention, make sure you keep an eye on the prelims because there's some fighters there who are looking to move their way up and make a name for themselves. And uh, the UFC Apex is where the stars, future stars are made. So uh, that'll be Saturday night 
July 17th at the Apex UFC on ESPN 26 I think is the official the official numbering Makachev versus Moises that Sandu is a pretty packed show for us this week we had a lot to talk about but um is you got anything else to drop on us before before we disappear or is it just uh just details of how everyone can get in touch with us listen we're an hour and a half into this show i think this is probably one of the longest episodes we've done in a long long time um we actually try to make sure that these shows are an hour or under uh just so Whoops. that it's like <laughs> and obviously there was so much to digest and to talk about and debate and discuss and all the rest of it so no nothing more to add except that please follow us on social media like us subscribe rate review wherever you're listening however you listen to us just support the show in one of those ways because it goes a long way ultimately the britpackmma.com that's the website and from there you can find us on social media both simon and my personal handles the show handle we're available on spotify and apple if you're listening to us on apple Podcasts, rate and review us there because that's how shows get found and, and it helps with the apple podcast algorithm and then of course youtube 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 Go to our YouTube channel, subscribe. It's an audio-only product right now. It will be video uh, sooner rather than later. We're working on it. We're very excited about it. Uh, but if you like listening to us or like listening to a podcast uh, in the background while you crack on with work and whatever else you do with your time, um, that show is available as an audio product at the moment on YouTube as well. There you go, Simon. That's everything. There we go. A bit of a whopper of a show this week. Loads to talk about. Uh, I feel more energized now we've done that show. I've, I've sort of started the show on a bit of a downer, still trying to bounce back from uh, from the realization that football isn't actually coming home at all. Which you know, it will you... in Qatar, twenty twenty two. It's only it's it's a year away. I think the, I think the World Cup's in the winter because Qatar uh, unable to do it in the summer because it's just too damn hot. So we've got about about eighteen months or so I think before before we can start talking about football coming home which it will at some point you know it's just on a, it's just on a italian well it's on an italian holiday right now so uh hope hope it enjoys rome and uh at some point we it will come home it will come home one day and uh but mma the sport with no season just keeps on rolling there's no no off season in mma and uh we'll cover each and every one of these big shows and uh give you give you the lowdown on everything and unpack every event after each show so uh, thank you to everybody out there for checking us out thanks for sticking with us to the end of this one and uh, enjoy bellator on friday night enjoy the ufc on saturday night and come back and join us next week and we'll talk about it all see you in a week yeah.